With the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, the U.S. government has fully embraced the idea of mandating price controls for therapies paid for by Medicare. However, there are many provisions within the IRA that are now, upon reflection, seen as potentially very problematic, impacting the ability of the U.S. to maintain its lead in biopharmaceutical innovation. I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this Vital Health Podcast, I'm speaking with Jeff Yonker, the CEO of Belhara Therapeutics, an early-stage private biotech company headquartered in San Francisco with labs in San Diego. It's focused on the discovery of next-generation small molecule medicines. Jeff, it's really great to sit down and talk to you today. Likewise. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Belhara Therapeutics, you're one of the many companies to emerge from Versant Ventures in San Diego and in the Inception Incubator Fund, which has had a huge amount of success. Obviously, Lycia, who many of the audience may or may not know, the founder of that company was just awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. So, tremendous pedigree for you to be coming out of this organization. What's the history of Belhara? Yeah, my friend Etna's uh, company, Lycia, is looking great there. We're uh, we're, we're kind of hoping for our own Nobel someday, but uh, (laughs) we'll we'll wait and see. So, you know, there was a a field of chemical biology that evolved. um, It's going back a couple decades now of trying to understand how these small molecules that become pills in medicine form uh, interact with the proteins, right? You've got about 20,000 proteins that run Duane. And now those proteins take all kinds of different forms. They come together with pairs and other kind of uh, protein complexes, but that's the building block of everything that you are. It's also the things that go wrong. And so of those 20,000 proteins, we've got great data on how maybe five, 6,000 of those proteins skip the rails and become a disease or a condition. But what's interesting is that of all of the approved small molecule therapies in the United States, um, only 600 proteins are actually targeted by all of those medicines. So there's a whole bunch that we know about biology, but we don't have the ability to actually have a, a small molecule pill that will interdict that biology. So what Belhara is, is a platform company looking at many of those established known protein actions and seeing if there's pockets where a small molecule could bind and modulate that protein that we've missed so far. So the 19,400 that are still out there <laughs> exactly. to target. So, so it's great in that we don't have to go and do new biology, right? right? And, and actually, so I was, you know, I was in, in, uh, in a big biotech once, uh, working at Genentech in business development. We had what was a very super secret uh, wish list. It was our shopping list of the things that we wanted to go out and license. The irony is that as I've gone on in my career and seen the other super secret lists that other companies use, the overlap between those is remarkable, right? We have a lot of agreement on where there are key drivers of the biology of disease. We just haven't yet made the progress we want to, to help those patients. And so we don't have to, at Belhard, we don't have to go and say, we're going to find some new biology. We're going to go back to the beginning, as it were, and say, all right, what are the greatest hits? What What are those targets that we all would agree are really meaningful in different diseases. And let's see if we can come up with a new drug for them. And the way we do that goes back to this chemical biology idea is we have some of the greatest founders in the world. Um, ben Cravat, Stuart Schreiber, they kind of invented the field. Yeah, no um, kidding. And they've also been you know, sort of prolifer- uh, profuse inventors uh, of new companies. And they've been founders on a number of, of really meaningful companies like Vertex, sure. uh, Vividian. And then we have two really young co-founders who had a new idea, which is instead of having kind of a chemical reaction, what if you could put a photoreactive tag on compounds and then you run it through these mass spectrometers, you see the wavelengths of the light, and you get to see, you know, in quotes, where you have chemicals binding proteins. And we can do that at a very high throughput. So instead of just throwing things against the wall 
and seeing what sticks, which is, you know, a, a fairly reductionist and, and somewhat, you know, dismissive view of the way the industry worked for decades. We can see with a lot of fidelity in very quick time, where do you actually see an interaction between a chemical and a protein and then get going on it if it's a protein that you know is active in disease. Jack Scannell, the uh, analyst who used to work for UCB, obviously yep. very well known, one of the inventors of the term Irum's Law and Moore's Law in reverse, yep. but productivity having every 10 years. <laughs> Jack makes a really good point. He's like, where we have good models, we have great drugs. So, you know, rituximab, leukemia, yep. great, you know, fantastic drug. Where we're lacking on the hard tumors, for example, is where we don't really have good models. Obviously, high-throughput screening 20 years ago was all the rage. People were, you know, did the linear calculations. All the MBAs came out and said, well, we do one for 10 here. If we do this to a million, we're going to get 100,000. Didn't quite work out that way, though. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and, and look, full disclosure, I'm an accidental tourist in this industry. Um, <laughs> well, what, I, I, what's I, your background? Uh, so I, I was going into politics and, and public <laughs> policy, uh, did a master's degree studying the ways you can do uh, counter and anti-terrorism, was heading to law school thinking I was going to go that direction and somehow ended up in this industry, mainly because I think my idealism wasn't well suited for politics and the way that that world <laughs> So it's better uh, for biopharma. <laughs> well, you know, on our best days, uh, there's people walking this earth that would be here Absolutely. or that are, are walking a whole lot healthier, you know, happy lives. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud to have been associated with a handful of medicines that have made it to patients, uh, played a very, very small role in those, but you know, that's a cause I can get behind and, and uh, I'm pretty excited about, but, but I think your point is well made, which is that, that we haven't found biology to scale. Right. Um, in the way that we hoped it would. And we, you know, there's different expectations around the human genome and what that might, and I think we're getting there, but, but really the thing that we most needed was how do you get to some of the more challenging targets? And if you, again, you look at the medicines that are approved, most of them are around enzymes and most of them are inhibitors. It's because the enzymes are pretty straight ahead and they're also pretty easy to, to stop. And that's what most things do they're inhibitors of activity. Atnes company that you mentioned earlier, Lycia, they, you know, the whole idea of molecular glues where you could bind something and activate it or kind of bring things together in a different fashion, that's opening up a whole new area of biology. But what we're also finding is that some of the things that are most potent actors in your body, things um, that, that really are the controlling um, entities in the body, those proteins that turn things on, like transcription factors yeah. that tell other proteins what to do. Those are the gold mine for how we would improve a disease outcome. But those are the hardest targets. And so I think what, what Belhar is doing is a technology and others are, are pursuing something along similar lines. Is how do you see targets that drugs can actually get at um, on those proteins of really high value? And that's what we're about. Obviously, as a small molecule company, bringing back good old-fashioned medicinal chemistry, yeah. and California has always been known for large molecules yeah. and biologics. Yeah. Why do you think there's been this renewed focus, particularly on some areas like neurology, where we're seeing so much action in the small molecules now? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's no doubt that, that there's a convenience factor and there's a simplicity of small molecules that really makes them attractive um, from a physician and a patient standpoint. Manufacturing, there's a whole bunch of advantages. Um, I think that what we are realizing is that, you know, the high throughput screening you referenced, we, we kind of did, you know, almost like a carpet bombing yeah. and, and it grabbed a lot of low hanging fruit. And so we made hay with that and we've got new medicines and that's fantastic. But there was a number of things that we wanted to succeed on that we didn't with those approaches. The approaches that Belhar is using and others right now are kind of giving you a chance to go back to the beginning and try again with a bunch of targets. I also think that, that we're realizing that 
you know, protein therapeutics are fantastic. I worked at Genentech. I certainly have a deep background in them, but they also have, you know, it's a certain tool for a certain need. And, and I think there are, there are a lot of benefits to using small molecules. You mentioned neurological indications. Um, it's a lot easier to get yeah. a small molecule into the brain. Um, even that's challenging, but it's, it's an order of magnitude easier, <laughs> yeah. uh, literally, um, because of the size of things than you have with protein therapeutic. And this has been what we've been seeing at CTAT as well. One of the big, the, the dosing issues around the monoclonal antibodies targeting the amyloid plaques, it's been, you know, the toxicity questions and things around that have been very challenging. Yeah. And only now, I mean, what, they've been at this for 20 years. Now we're finally getting readouts that show positive net value. So yes, that brain barrier is very, very challenging. Yeah, and I think that's the other thing we're seeing as an industry, and again, it just gives me a great hope for patients, is we have much more targeted therapies now. You know, when we were developing a lot of small molecules 30, 40 years ago, it was an all-comers, right? Let's just find something that works for everybody or that we think will. Precision medicine that we're moving towards or personalized, depending sure. on what you know, nomenclature you like, we're able to really figure out who's the patient that's going to benefit, and we can do that with a small molecule now in a way we couldn't before. And that's partly what you need to do is can you find a, you know, a pocket? Can you find a, a sort of site on a protein that's unique to that protein in that state? And maybe it's one that's only in that changed state because of a, you know, a genetic disease or a genetic condition that you've got. That's part of what we're moving towards, I think, as an industry. There's a resurgence on small molecules. And lo and behold, in comes the Inflation Reduction Act, which basically splits the way we look now at large and small molecules for reimbursement in the U.S. We are valuing a small molecule four years shorter, less revenue. The pricing negotiation kicks in at year nine for small molecules, year 13 for large molecules. Essentially, you're going to get four-ish more years of revenue if you're focused on the, on the big biologics, as it were. You're a company focused on small molecules. Small molecules yeah. What does this mean to you right now? I mean, you, you just said you're doing funding rounds. What's, what's happening? Yeah. Start with what I'm not. I'm not a policy expert. I'm not the kind of guy sure. that lives at the, at the level of detail you need to, to, to really understand how these things are going to get implemented, negotiated. Even when I was at large companies, I was always focused on early stage innovation. What I understand, though, is the way that the dog wags the tail, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, well, I'll ask you, you're a keen observer of the industry. What do you think is the industry that's most analogous to ours? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, the film industry, I'd say, in many ways. I would exactly agree. <laughs> and, and, and so I think that people have a better understanding maybe of the way that movies get made um, in the sense that they know that there are screenwriters. Um, oftentimes those are kind of folks working independently. It gets picked up by a small production company. Yeah, and the screenwriters keep them in a closet somewhere. Yeah, you never exactly. let them actually on the but, set. <laughs> but the best movies come, you know, some yeah. from these independent folks. And, and the stuff that the studios tend to produce, you know, with big budgets... You know, they have a certain cachet, but those often aren't the really compelling stories, the stuff that grabs us. And often those start in smaller shops and a smaller production company. But when you get to the point of wanting to get it into the streaming services or getting into the movie theaters or whatever you know place it goes nowadays, you need a big company. And you need a company that knows what they're doing, that knows how to place it, knows how to promote it. And educate the public about why they need to go see it, right? Guardians of the Galaxy pays for a bunch of small independent films. Fundamentally, that's the reality. Right. And they can't predict what things are really going to hit, no. right? And, and it's almost impossible. You've got industries full of people trying to figure that out. And same with us. 
Um, I think where it's a little different with us, obviously, is the stakes are quite different and the dollars involved um, are actually higher. And the timelines, surprisingly, because films take years, we take decades. And, you know, it's interesting when you go and you do uh, some conversations with people in policy positions, they don't understand how a lot of this works. Um, I think there is a perception that the NIH funds innovation and then companies come along and cherry pick it and turn it into a drug (laughs) in a matter of, you know, months. The failure rate in this industry is something I don't think until you've lived it, you really understand. You know, when 99% of the projects you start fail, um, it is it is really daunting. And so what happens is that, you know, investors are incredibly dispassionate, right? The good ones are ex- excited about their investments, but they're very objective. When they look at what we can produce and they model it, and they always do, as to what they think a return on that investment is going to be, and they start seeing things like shorter periods of time to make the money back by the big companies. And they know that the big companies' partnering activities are going to begin to reflect that. Then the people I need to start the companies that I build begin to say, we're going to place fewer of those bets. We've got a lot of chaos in the market right now. Yeah. Um, and so it's hard for me to, to detect a signal that I would say is, is directly attributable to IRA at this point. But it's certainly a headwind that's joining forces with others. Macroeconomic conditions, you know, inflationary rates in the U.S., just the challenges of, of succeeding in drug development. But you know, when you have a kind of arbitrary system that's just going to say, we're going to stop you from being able to make a return on your innovation investment that was 20 years in the making and how many hundreds of millions of dollars, that does start to affect investor attitudes. I was just on the phone this morning with a, a venture capital investor who's saying, you know, we're, we're, we're pulling back, right? We, we just raised a new fund, but we're probably going to be more selective about where we put it. That wasn't specific to us. We were just more talking about market conditions. But it's the class, probably. Absolutely. Have you, at your firm, has Belhara made any decisions to sort of anticipate the impacts of essentially a nine-year loss of exclusivity event? Indirectly. Yeah. And, and this is how I see it. So there is a piece of where I think we're going as a society and maybe even globally with how you think about allocating healthcare spend, right? So if we think about it really in that kind of big picture, I think the thing that is good for companies like mine is that I, I think we're going to con- increasingly place more money on true value uh, to patients, right? And I think in some ways that's a that's a positive for companies like mine because we're trying to we're trying to knock it out of the park, right? We, right? we are trying to make people walk. We're trying to cure diseases. We're trying to do things that really will be hugely impactful. Because if you don't start there as an early stage company, you know you're going to get that whittled down, right? You're, you're, you'd love to hit the bullseye, but sometimes you're one or two rings out from it. But if you don't start with a bullseye that is totally game-changing and high, high value, undeniably high value to patients then over that course of two decades, you know, you're, you're not going to come close to being something relevant. So it is definitely the case that because there's going to be fewer years to earn a return, because I think there's just going to be less money available to invest in small molecules, you better develop small molecules that are phenomenal. Problem is this, we go back to picking the blockbuster for the summer, like we're not great at knowing what is really going to be a bullseye 20 years away. And so I think the problem becomes one of you may be making bets on things you think are going to be great and deciding not to invest in projects that you think won't be. And you're wrong, right? And in a marketplace where there's more capital to build companies like mine, 
some of the bets that are on the fringe that may actually be the, the real game changers for patients don't get developed. California has been a huge recipient of investments. If you look at over the last 10 years, the companies who are most likely to be impacted have their balance sheet impaired because of the IRA. By 2031, you're pulling $82 billion a year out of the market. Now, that's our number, and that's also pretty darn close to CBO's number, too. We, both of us use different methodology, and we kind of landed almost square on $80 billion a year, give or take. California has been getting $15 billion a year of investment capital from those 12 companies that are going to be impacted by the IRA. What happens if we start sucking out 15 billion, start hoovering it up and taking it and putting it in Washington, D.C. and not kicking it back to the biotechs here? How does that impact the ecosystem here? I mean, it's, it's what I was saying. I think that, that, you know, invariably, I mean, there's a running joke, right? That, that, um, you know, nobody in a, in a big biopharma company gets fired for saying no, because statistically <laughs> you're on the side of, of, yeah. of chance there by an overwhelming majority. And so, you know, anybody that is sort of sticking their neck out to advocate for something that is pushing the envelope is going to ultimately pull back a little bit. And that, that behavior then ripples through a whole you know group of companies and a whole set of executives and, and researchers, and you start seeing safer choices, right? And again, I think that that invariably means that you're probably going to miss some things and maybe some of the most impactful things. Right. Because um, we don't see a correlation between uh, tried and true and big impact, right? If we did, there wouldn't be as need for as many of the small companies like mine as there are. That would mean that the big companies were better at doing R&D than they are because they tend to make those safe bets internally. And then what they do is that it's back to, you know, doing guardians of the galaxy right they go with the formula they know works and sometimes it hits big but when they do stuff that is really pushing the envelope they go to the small companies because who's crazy enough to do that yeah we're pretty confident as an industry that if you start to turn the spigot down on the revenues that we're getting that it's not just R&D generally that's going to contract. It's the R&D focused on the, on the real innovative. Exactly. The small molecules, things. the orphan it, drugs. It won't be applied yeah. globally. It'll be really that's the place. Uh, and then as soon as the venture community sees that, because look, Versant Ventures, they take meetings with all of the deal makers and all the big companies. That's part of the way they keep a finger on the pulse of what is the appetite for companies like mine. Yeah, what's the market, right? It doesn't take more than a few quarters for something like that to ripple through, and it begins to change their pattern of behavior. It, I mean, it's not like this is guesswork kind of prediction, uh, crystal ball gazing. This happens, right? Yeah. And they come back from meetings like that and talk to their early stage companies and say, there's a lot of appetite at X, Y, and Z for ABC. Do you have anything in your portfolio that would cater to that? Because it certainly would make you a better prospective partner for, for X, Y, and Z. This came up so fast. IRA came out of nowhere. Yeah. It really was a tsunami that just hit. Everyone thought you know Build Back Better was dead come December, and then this deal gets cut. And I think it caught everyone flat-footed. The general feeling is, well, it's only the big companies that are going to get hit, and it's in year nine. Now you're starting to see a realization that actually the real losers here, the real people who are going to be at risk are the small neurology products, the targeted orphan drugs, the gene-based biomarker-based therapies, the accelerated approvals that are already under a tremendous amount of pressure from a revenue and ROI standpoint. They're not generally making their cost of capital. They may generate some cash flow. They're not hitting those numbers already. They're under tremendous pressure. And now you're 
making that a really, really difficult ask for a venture capitalist to be punting. That may not happen anymore. It takes a complete ecosystem yeah. um, to, to run efficiently and effectively. And it's the, the margin bets, right? Those things that yeah. are really on the periphery is the first thing that gets cut back um, because people are people, right? If you run an R&D organization, a big company, you don't want to start cutting your own team, right? Where's the first place you're going to look? It's, it's those speculative deals to the, you know, the, the crazy, uh, you know, entrepreneurs in California. And they're like, I think that can probably, uh, you know, afford to get cut back a little bit. So speaking of California, we're here in San Francisco. It's kind of a rainy, cold day today. <laughs> Sorry we didn't do Yeah, it's okay. I live in Belgium. I got a Belgian day. It's fine. What's interesting to me is the sort of schizophrenia of the political culture here, because arguably there's no question california has been the dominant biotech market by almost twofold yet your politicians have been the ones <laughs> driving this idea that we need to have aggressive price controls and, and knock back the industry how do you square that circle here yeah you know it's it's um and, and here again this is sort of a disclaimer like i'm not a politician or particularly you know i'm not i'm not in in government affairs or anything like that. I, I've got some fairly candid opinions that, that, you know, I'm an N of one here and it definitely, I'm speaking for myself. I go back to some of the things that, um, you know, better minds than me have written like Roy Vagelos going back a couple decades. I do think that our industry has a social compact uh, with society. And I, I think that actually is a good thing. And I think that at points in time, we have violated that. And I think that, that you know, if you look at, at us living in the basement with the tobacco industry and the gun industry in terms <laughs> and the of media. And media, you know, <laughs> um, uh, you know, in terms of public approval, I mean, it's like, oh my God, how did that happen, right? And I think that there's a number of causal factors, some within our control, some not. I think we've engaged in a few behaviors at times, and it's not just Screlly, right, at, the, at, the, at sort of the extreme. It certainly didn't help, but there's aspects of behavior where we have pushed medicines into the hands of patients that didn't really need them. And we have continued to raise prices past the point, you know, where I think, you know, reasonable numbers would suggest we were on terra firma as far as, as justifying those increases. And I think that, that some of that has come home to roost. And so I think that that's part of my answer for why you see a little bit of a, you know, kind of almost a, a split of, of perspectives here. And then you merge that with the fact that they don't really understand how our industry works, right? I mean, I, this was apocryphal I, um, or anecdotal, rather. I wasn't in the meeting, but, but you know, a congressional member was waving an iPhone, you know, in some industry member's face saying, what you guys do is, again, just repackaging NIH innovation. This, this phone here, that's innovation. And people don't get it that, that you know, you don't need to invent um, or discover any new laws of physics um, to, to make an iPhone, right? You got to be really thoughtful, and innovative, put a bunch of things together that already existed. But we have to discover new biology, right? Every day to be able to do what we do. And it's really hard. I think that you put those sort of boxcars together and you end up where we are, which is people value us. People love, you know, when you can come out with an mRNA COVID vaccine in record time and, and frankly save lives, but they don't understand how hard that is. They don't understand how expensive, they don't understand the fail rate. And then they see examples of some bad behaviors um, and they see, you know, profitability levels that lead a lot of other industries. And they kind of add that all up to there must be greed in there that's driving this. It's not really a desire to maintain that commitment to innovation. And, and so I think that's, that's this one armchair quarterback's kind of take on things. Yeah, there's a couple of things I'd like to pick up on there. One of them, 
is the the net net profitability of the industry. Yeah, Pfizer's banked a hundred billion dollars. Okay, fine. They also took an enormous bet on mRNA. Yeah, I think many of us would be hard pressed to argue, particularly during the first couple waves through Delta. If you were over sixty five, you had a two thirds net reduction in real risk. You went from a nine percent mortality rate to a three percent. That's real efficacy, and no one can argue that. The problem is, if you look at the industry overall, over the last five years, the industry's profits have been declining as, yeah. a, as, na- as a whole. Yeah. The pharmaceutical sector now has a net profitability of about 14%, just under the soft drink sector. Yeah. So Coca-Cola and Pepsi and <laughs> those industries actually give a better return. There's some rhetoric here that plays well on the street, as they say. But yeah. the reality is that's not, it's not the way it it is yeah. across the sector. No, and I think that's right. And I think you also have elements of, again, perception because one of the few places that people actually see a substantial out of pockets when they go to the pharmacy. Correct. Um, otherwise, I mean, I've reached that age. I've got to have a colonoscopy next week. I have no idea how much that costs. I, I could not tell you, right? And I'm a fairly informed member of, uh, <laughs> of the healthcare society. We're also one of the only national um, sectors uh, in, in the healthcare industry, right? It's really hard to come after regional hospital uh, systems. It's, it's hard. Well, particularly when they're the largest employer yeah. in the area. Right. And everybody <laughs> likes, you know, likes their own doctor. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's a number of factors, I think, coming together. But I come back to what I was saying. I think that there is an element of opportunity here with IRA that I would love to see us as an industry kind of try to see what we can do to, to shape the future of debate around how you allocate dollars for healthcare spend. I think that if we can head towards a system where we are, are rewarded for true value creation, and I know that's a really complicated thing to measure, but if you can look at on an individual human basis, patient basis, where you have added value to the system. And you can say, we will reward for that, right? Uh, And whether that's the da Vinci surgery system, or it is a pill, or it's an RNA vaccine, or whatever it might be, but if you can have a really significant impact on somebody's life course or, or ultimate length, that's something we should be paying for. If we can adopt a system that reasonably does that well and consistently, then I'm actually very bullish on the future for our industry because I think we do that about as well as any piece of of the healthcare system. I agree wholeheartedly. The problem is the history of putting out good drugs is replete with examples where (laughs) payers still don't want to pay. I mean, Herceptin uh, in England, you know, got rejected. They didn't take it. Unfortunately, that 50% of the people are women and they vote and they didn't particularly appreciate that. So they became a political issue, unfortunately. I I remember that well. Yeah. I think you have a lot of very well-intentioned people, uh, very good, smart people at CMS. And, you know, I know there's conversations going on because one of the ironies of IRA IRA is that it did happen so fast that it caught a lot of the people in the government by surprise. Absolutely. And there's not a lot of guidance as to how they're supposed to implement it. And so there are conversations going on. I, I hear a lot of open ears as far as what's a smart way to do this because... Look, a lot of these folks are physicians, and they don't want to see that squash. They do have an appreciation for how the ecosystem works. We're here now. We've got some legislation that I don't think that that the industry uh, would have ever endorsed. But let's see what we can do with it. It is kind of from from an entrepreneur's perspective, and that happens to you know somewhat self-interestedly it aligns with what I think young biotechs want, which is tell me that there is a significant value 
that you economically, that you will place on a high value medicine for patients. And, and I've got a system I can work with. One of the other criticisms though, and you have brought this up yourself, is this idea that you know, a company like yours isn't really driving the innovation, it's the NIH. And you're just kind of a free rider on this. Now, I don't know if you've seen it, but we published a study last month in therapeutic innovation and regulatory science. Well, I heard all about it because I listened to your podcast. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Here's the chocolate for you. Yeah. <laughs> what was intriguing though is, you know, we looked at 24,000 grants, 8,000 patents, and then we ran the numbers and said, okay, what's the probability functions of, of these inputs? Then what we found was, you know, if the private market is not there, regardless of how much money the NIH has put in, this stuff doesn't come to market, period, period. Why do you think this narrative continues? I mean, I think that we have a healthy appreciation and, and admiration for our academic uh, centers, right? And, and they are pretty fantastic. I've got a lot of friends uh, working as researchers in, in universities. I also think that we're proud as a, as a society of our investment. In, in science, right? I mean, despite some of the political trends in recent years, I think that deep down, we kind of know that one of the things that distinguishes uh, American society and the American economy is is a commitment to to invest in, in new ideas and new science. And, and real money, too. $100, and, and $100 billion. Big dollars. Bucks. Yeah, big, big, big bucks. bucks a year. Whether it's Velcro from the NASA program or what have you. I mean, there, there's a... Tang. There, Don't forget Tang. Tang. What did happen to Tang? Um, you know, I do think that, that there is a desire to see that as, as creating real value. And again, I think there's a little bit of ignorance about what it takes. You know, I think this would be another area where I think that we could be touting the system we've got. I mean, the whole world would, would love to have a regulatory system like FDA. And, you know, there's a reason that when folks get sick in almost any country in the world, if they have a choice, they want an FDA-approved drug because that is the gold standard. The investment we've made in society kind of assumes, I think, that these things happen. You mentioned models, right, and earlier. And, and actually, one of the ironies that I see is that, you know, Nixon uh, initiated the war on cancer just about 50 years ago. Yeah. We haven't won it. But the truth is that that investment is reaping remarkable dividends. Because while you're right that the, the, the models we use are still not what they'd like them to be, the models we have in cancer way outstrip anything. I mean, there was a reason that we have so much drug discovery going on in oncology right now. It's because the predictability of both the cell lines and the animal models preclinically to the human outcomes is remarkable compared to other areas. You know, I've worked in Alzheimer's. I've worked in autoimmune diseases like lupus. Sure. You're throwing darts. I mean, you really have no ability. I mean, honestly, Alzheimer's, you have mice that, that swim in a maze. And that is the measure of cognitive function. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's, it's, you know, does it have some predictive ability? Yeah, a little bit. But it's not the kind of thing where you can see a tumor shrinking, yeah. you know, in an animal and say, oh, this thing's actually working on that. And that's a human tumor, right? We got it out of a patient. I think that part of it is that when we publicize big headlines. It tends to be research papers. It tends to be, you know, big inventions or activities in academia. I think there's an assumption that it's a very quick route from there to something that a doctor hands a patient. And you and I know the truth, but I mean, shoot, I live here in Silicon Valley. I go to cocktail parties with mostly tech people, you know, and the number of times I've had a conversation about if I, if my industry, our industry would just wake up and realize we just need to uberize ourselves of course right? that that every it would solve everything and and they really have and these are incredibly smart innovative entrepreneurial people they don't have an idea right of how how it works well google made an enormous investment in mm -hmm. aging 
research about 20 years ago, and they were going to solve it. I'm not sure if you remember that. It didn't work out terribly well. <laughs> it turns out that it's much harder than people think. I, IBM's Watson was another one. Obviously, it worked very well in investing. Chess. Did, yeah, chess, great chess. Worked great at chess. Did very well on Jeopardy. Yeah. But funny, you know, human beings and the, the heterogeneity of a treatment pathway, you get 100 patients in cancer, you get 100 different treatment pathways and 100 different responses. Yeah. And that, I think, a lot of the folks in this area where we are right now is uh, not understood. Yeah. The irony, and again, the reason I think, um, you know, I remain incredibly bullish uh, on our future as a society, as an industry, is a lot of the investment we've been making is just beginning to come to fruition. Yeah, of course. Right? I mean, the, the, the human genome, we thought that project would just open up all kinds of things like that. Turns out it didn't, but it opened up a bunch of doors. I mean, even the area I work in, proteomics, we began to realize it's not a one-to-one correlation between what's in your genome and what's actually produced in your body. And the way that those proteins interact with each other is also a big part of, of the magic. That all became clearer, and then we came up all kinds of tools because of the sequencing technology that the Human Genome Project... So there's there's a wonderful... I think belief in some uh, arenas that this is going to be the biotech century or the biology century, maybe. And I, th- I think that's completely true. I-, I think we're standing on the cusp of opening up a lot of things well beyond what we know today. I just hope that we don't squash that innovation. Back to the topic that, you know, you're... The Biden administration with USTR, US Trade, and the World Trade Organization has started opening up the mRNA technology. I think if we look at the most innovative technologies that have come on the biotech sector in the last five to 10 years, I think CAR-T and uh, mRNA would arguably be the two most cutting edge and most interesting ways to target new areas. What does IP mean to you? We operate in a very global economy and in a very global competitive arena. And I've had instances where IP has walked out the door with scientists Mm. and landed in companies in other countries who've rapidly started to create competing programs. Interesting. And without the ability to enforce that in any meaningful way. It kind of goes back to what you're saying about, about the investment in publicly funded research. I can't tell you exactly what the secret sauce is that has produced the level of innovation in this country around healthcare. But I would really be reluctant to tinker too much um, until you know better what the outcome is. Um, And I think that's one of the greatest fears I've got with the waiver around TRIPS um, and mRNA and and with things like IRA. Be careful. (laughs) You've got a system that works remarkably well in terms of producing innovation. We can have an argument and maybe even reach agreement on where we could figure out ways to make that more cost effective or figure out a way to possibly spread that cost across the globe. I mean, that would be another thing I would bring up we haven't touched on. Yeah. But, you know, one of the realities is that, you know, the U.S. consumer, or at least the payers, are underwriting a lot of the innovation, uh, you know, in... in Only about 70 to 80%. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, as you're going to start talking about things like decisions and and actions being taken at, at WTO, it's very difficult for a company like Genentech to have an argument with NHS, driving patients in the U.K. have Herceptin. But that's a conversation that a government can have and say, look, you want continued access to our innovation. You need to be paying a fair price. Um, that's a really good point because all of these pricing bills now started with the Trump administration and Secretary Azar three and a half years ago, four years ago. And what they were saying was the U.S. government is only going to charge based on the average of a basket of countries, Europe, uh, Australia, Japan, Canada, basically. That's where it boiled down to. 
And the premise was then the pharmaceutical companies would have to negotiate harder as if they weren't negotiating hard already. We said, why, why aren't you guys putting this as part of trade? Yeah. You're going around bashing NATO for 12% of GDP. Yeah. This is 20% of GDP. What are you doing? Yeah. And they just didn't want to take it as part of trade. And you're making a huge deal about pirated copies, right? Of, yeah. Of you know whatever is being sold in Shanghai, you're not you're not terribly concerned, right? About the leakage of the IP that that underscores one of the more valuable industries in this, you know. In because it's politically expedient, unfortunately. Yeah, and again, it goes back to. I mean, I do think we have a reputational issue to repair. Um, yeah, and, and I think that's part of where we need to be focusing energies, in my opinion. Is is and, and look, I, I felt like. If I had my druthers, I, I would have pushed the industry or been able to push the industry um, more in the direction of, of some voluntary price controls, right? I think if we had done that eight, 10 years ago, um, we might be sitting in a slightly different position. And I don't know what the analogous issue is right now. I think it may be about value creation. But, you know, uh, again, back to Genentech, my, one of my alma maters, you know, there was a voluntary policy that adopted, which was no more than, I think it was three and a half percent price increases per annum or the actual rate of inflation. That yeah. was it, you know, and they promised they wouldn't do that. Had we had a, you know, an industry-wide commitment to do that, how much would that have cooled some of the heat that, that is now coming back to haunt us? I don't know, but I, I, I do think time is ripe for us to take a little bit more sort of realistic view maybe and this is again speaking from the small company that has no revenues and probably won't for, <laughs> for decades um, but but I do think now might be a time to say look there's there's a new world order coming around healthcare spending whether it arrives two years from now five or ten I don't know but things are going to be changing let's get ahead of that curve let's put what's best about this industry what's most valuable to the society and to the economy forward and make the case that you structure a system that favors that. That's, again, one entrepreneur's take on, on kind of where I'd like to see this go. Does the government ever really negotiate? Yeah, no. I mean, I do think that... that Just uh, uh, philosophically here, I mean, I, I agree. I hear what you're saying, but ultimately, if that government has 60, 70% of your revenue and they have the power of the purse and the power of the gun, is it really a negotiation? That's the problem. It, it never will be, right? The power that they have is, is just so uh, remarkably great. I do think if you can shift the conversation again, and I'm not trying to make this my single issue for today, but I do think that if you can have a conversation about value impact on patients. It puts the focus properly where it should be as a healthcare system. I think it also moves it a little bit off the dollars specifically. Sure. It's really easy to get focused on, you know, on, on nickels and dimes. And, and I do think that if you say, it's not just about your spend today. And I'll give a good example. I think when Gilead came out, you know, with a cure for hep C, mm -hmm. the reality was that the economic impact of that on a very short-term basis was what the problem was. The payers hadn't budgeted for it. Right. Not only that, the average lifespan of a covered patient life for private insurer is like three and a half years. And so you weren't even going to see the benefit of that investment. You're going to pay 80000 or 65000 or whatever it was going to be. And you wouldn't see much of the benefit because by that time, the patient... Now, that would have been a perfect intervention for the government to say, well, hang on. By the time these people are on dialysis or worse, they're going to be our problem. They're going to be on Medicare, Medicaid. Yeah. Let's do something to think about the societal solution here that puts patients first, that talks about total value to the system, and isn't so much dollars and cents today, but is thinking about what's rational. And Savaldi is an interesting case because the comparable cure, the alternative, which is pegylated interferon, it was only 45% effective. At $40,000, your cost per cure 
in real terms was actually higher. Mm-hmm. Half the time you were paying that, it didn't work and it didn't cure the patient. So yeah. you still had to do all the other stuff yeah. too. Plus you had this risk for a, a liver transplant, about yeah. one out of five patients yeah, within 10 years. Transplant. Crazy yeah. expensive. And most of those patients weren't eligible even. No. Um, right? Because of the background of the disease. No. Right? So they got cancer. Yeah. And so you ended up with... You, know, you ended up with liver cancer. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. Fantastic. More cost. Yeah. And so what was fascinating to us when you looked at that debate, it's like, wow, this debate's really gone off the rails here because you're really missing the key point. Within 18 months, AbbVie had come out with their combo therapy as a competitor and the price dropped 50%. So now you're at 40000 Basically, we've almost eradicated hepatitis C in the United States. I mean, the, the sales are dropping now just because there aren't many more patients. A couple more years, it goes generic. Yep. And then it's free. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't look at the societal benefit of the fact that Hatch-Waxman is yeah. there right. and it works and stuff does essentially society gets it forever now right. for free. Yeah. Which again, I mean, to, to sort of, you know, uh, borrow from, from a better mind than mine. I mean, Peter Kolchinski has written some good stuff oh, yeah, on of this, course. right? And, and so, you know, Peter's he's spot on, right? We have a bargain that we struck there. And in some ways, Savaldi is an interesting sort of a little microcosm. Like the government should be incented to say we want hugely impactful medicines with big cost savings to society. Like that's the that's the power of negotiating that they should bring to bear. And the and the Savaldi did, and they got there, right? But they caught hell for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think if they began to use, I mean, back to can you ever negotiate with the sure. government? No. But if the government was able to, to keep a bit more of a long-term perspective there on, on what's real value, I, 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 as you can tell, there's a reason I'm an entrepreneur. I'm idealistic probably to a fault um, <laughs> and optimistic too. So, so uh, yeah. But, but I do think there's, there's an opportunity for government to actually fix this. I don't think it's quite through the IRA process, <laughs> but if we could shift the conversation to what is real value and begin yeah. to have a healthcare system where the dollars follow the value. And don't spend 50% of our budget in the last six months of care, right? I mean, let's do things like that, that we begin to think about ways to make better investments as a society. Government's uniquely in that position. What about the PBMs taking 50 cents out of every dollar? And so basically the sick people now at the point of sale are subsidizing the healthy. Yeah. And that's that's one where I feel like, you know, this gets into the trench warfare of DC yeah. and I don't know exactly how that all plays, but that to me seems like those folks need to be trotted into the limelight, you know, and, and let's have a conversation about the value they're bringing, um, you know, to, to the system. But there are three of them are in the top 10 of all industries and they've got very, very strong friends on the Hill right now. Yeah, and like that's going to be a tough, tough, tough battle. Like I said, I think, I think that's, that's, that's the trench warfare DC. Yeah. There's gotta be ways to tackle that. Um, where do you think California biotech is now in five years? You're under a bit of attack here, particularly in the small molecules, the field you play in. Yeah. Where are you ending up in five years? Where does this go? You know, as somebody who's building a business, I, I was you know employee number one a little more than a year ago. I've got 40 employees now based in San Diego and San Francisco. Those are some of the highest cost of living mm-hmm. places in the country. And yet, back to the sort of what's the secret sauce that keeps this whole thing going, that's exactly where we need to be. And California is leading in biotech, and I think will for a long time to come, because there's elements here that we can't find elsewhere. Some of it's the talent, right? And, and people will finish in one company and they'll roll over to the next. I've got eight folks that came out of our founder, Ben Kravat's lab, and they're just magic, right? Those people know exactly what they're doing with this technology. So being close, proximate to these top universities. So I think California stays the course, but it is probably not as vibrant if we don't have a little more recognition that this is a precious 
industry and, the, and that sort of the innovation that we're engaged in, you know, is as valuable and as worth supporting and frankly has as much societal good as things like clean energy or semiconductors, right? Those both got huge, big uh, pushes, right, to, to sort of protect them. And I think justifiably, but people need to appreciate that this industry is, is just as valuable and frankly doing just as much good. Jeff Yunker, CEO of Belhara Therapeutics. Jeff, it's been great to meet you. Thank you very much Enjoyed for the time. conversation. Thanks for making time. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Scholtes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. Our project manager is Gwen Laughlin. This Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2022.